This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to The Rest Is Money, with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. So we've got a special today. It's on our dysfunctional housing market. Everybody agrees it's not working. Talk us through what's gone wrong. Right. Should we, so shall I give you a little rundown then on where we're at at the minute? Because everyone's always obsessed with, you know, how much is the average home at the moment? How does that compare to salaries and things? So as things stand, and there are, there are figures that vary on this, but, you know, if you look at for example, Halifax, one of the biggest lenders uh, of mortgages, they say that the average home costs just shy of 290 grand now. Now, about 10 years ago, that was 175 grand. So that is a, a massive increase in terms of how much the average home costs. The average salary, meanwhile, is just less than 35 grand. So it's more than eight times your salary to buy the average home, if you look at average salary. Obviously, there's regional variations. It's six times your salary in Wales. It's five times your salary in Scotland. But if you look at, you know, let's take the 90s, it was about three and a half times average salary to buy a house. So there's that huge gap between how much people are bringing in for their income and how much it costs to buy a house. And over the last 25 years, housing affordability has worsened, hasn't it? So go on, Robert. Why has this happened? Why is there such that big gap? Actually, it's worth pointing out at this point that it wasn't that long ago, and I'm afraid things haven't improved very much, that some research by Schroeder's from memory showed that houses hadn't been so expensive relative to incomes since the 19th century. Wow. Um, we, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit in an earlier podcast. Now, there's so much that's gone wrong, right? One of them is we're just not building enough houses. Mm. As you know, the experts say that we have to build 340,000 units a year to have any chance of meeting demand based on those who can't get on the ladder around expected population growth. And we're building on average, I mean, in some years, it's been near 100,000 a year. But, you know, on average, although it has been rising recently, it's about 200,000 a year. We had, a, I think, a record year comparatively recently, but it was still well shy of that 340,000 needed. And then it's not just owner 
occupancy that's a problem. Rents have soared. Mm. You know, young people paying rents are having to shell out an astonishing proportion of their incomes. And then there is the scandal of social housing. And there's a, it's a scandal for two reasons. One is, as my colleague actually down here at ITV pointed out, with some brilliant investigative journalism, the living conditions, the damp conditions, you know, that people were being forced to live in, doing terrible harm, particularly to children, is genuinely a national scandal. But then separately, you know, there are 1.2 million people, and that's a conservative estimate, waiting to get social housing. And that's on a definition of who who's eligible for it, you know, that it means that fewer are now eligible. Everywhere you look, okay, whether it's owner occupancy, whether it's rental, whether it's social housing, there are serious problems. Yeah. And it's worth as well just breaking down what that divide is in terms of what are the percentage of people who, you know, are private renters and everything else. So it's about 35% of households own their own home outright. Um, then you've got about 30% who've got a mortgage for the house that they live in. In. Uh, if you look at private renters, that's about 19% and then 17% social housing. So that's and that 17% social housing, we should mention this, it's come down even since 97 by about a quarter, right? And why is that? It's actually because of the policy that was started in the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher's policy of right to buy, allowing people mm. to buy council houses that's been extended in certain circumstances to buy housing association properties. And it was an incredibly important policy for the Tories because they wanted to encourage private ownership. They, you know, they, they essentially thought, and actually, truthfully for them, it was a policy that turned people into Tories. One of the things that's really interesting about property ownership is it changes your approach to politics. Mm. One of the reasons that the Tories did so well in the Red Wall is that a lot of former Labour voters bought their council houses, suddenly became you know, asset owners got worried about the value of their asset and decided the Tories would look after them more than, than Labour. So it was great as a political strategy, you might argue, for the Conservative Party. But in terms of, you know, basically it should be, a, it's a basic human right to have warmth and a roof over your head. And the problem with the right to buy policy is the supply of decent accommodation and an affordable price for people on low incomes diminished mm. tremendously. And so just on the supply front there, because you you know, you gave the stats about how many homes we're not building that we need. The big reasons, first of all, I mean it's really expensive to build new homes at the minute, isn't it? If you look at how much construction and material costs have gone up by, it's about 30% over the last few years, which is massive. But then the bigger issue, which is what we've heard a lot of politicians talking about, particularly the Labour Party, is the planning. We don't have strategic planning in this country. You know, broadly, all decisions are made on a local case-by-case -case basis. And when a bunch of local people say, not in my backyard, uh, and make complaints, it's incredibly difficult to get the houses built. And what we need is a much more strategic approach, actually right from the top of government, about where we need housing. And then you know, it's not to ignore local people, but there are certain circumstances where you do have to say, 
in a sense, tough shit. You know, yeah, because NIMBYism is a big problem, isn't it? It's a, it's a massive problem. So zoning would be, for example... What's that? Zoning is simply where you say, this area here, you know, needs additional housing and broadly, you know, it's going to happen whatever the complaints of local people. Now, it's not to say you ignore them completely, but broadly it says there is need and it's going to happen. And is that on what time? Are we talking green belt then? Or? So uh, people would say that the green belt is another factor in terms of we're not building enough. I actually think, you know, there are sort of what's called grey-green bits of the green belt where maybe you could ease the restrictions. And one of the things that, for example, Labour is talking about is having a more flexible approach to the so-called grey-green bits of the green belt. You know. But actually, the green belt, this, this area of protected green land... I think it's been a great thing for this country. It's important to have green spaces. So I don't think you need to completely concrete over the green belt, which are these areas around our big cities that are protected. You could have much better use of what's called brownfield land, and you could have much better use of land that is sort of neither brown nor green, but is somewhere in between, which currently some of it is is within that protected green area. So I think my beef with all this is that if we had better infrastructure in the country and a better spread of jobs, it wouldn't be as big an issue because, you know, there are great parts of the north which haven't been built on. And I know there's lots of beautiful greenery that I don't want to get built on. But also there's lots of areas and opportunity to build affordable homes. But there aren't enough jobs or incentives for the, the builders, the house builders to build there because they won't necessarily get the prices. You know, when you teased this programme, you said, you know, good news for the North East. And that's because we're the most affordable place to live, isn't it? So the bit of good news I was going to get onto, and it's one of the really detrimental social effects of the shortage of housing, is that young people are not getting on the housing ladder till they're much older. The, the average age now of a first-time buyer is 34 years old, right? Now, that's two years older than the average age of a woman when they have their first child, yeah. right? So that tells you that really significant numbers of families are living with their mums and dads, which I have to say, thinking about it in my... I mean, that'd be an absolute... Imagine having your first kid <laughs> living with your mum and dad. It's an absolute bloody nightmare. Yeah. There are big social implications. One of them is that the birth rate has fallen very significantly. And actually, that's a big political issue, particularly on the Tory right. <laughs> you know, there are MPs like Miriam Cates, who no, have almost the entire you know, a point of politics for somebody like her is how do you get the birth rate? No one, uh, but, wa- no and, one wants to get it on and, when they're living with their parents, do they? Uh, I mean, you know, I think that's a completely reasonable point um, to make. But actually, the point I was going to make about the North East is actually the one part of the country where the average age of first-time buying has come down a bit recently is the North East, interestingly. But actually, you would argue perhaps for perhaps in some senses that the underlying cause is not so great is because economic performance of the Northeast has not been so great. House prices remain relatively affordable for those who are lucky enough to have a job. And, uh, and I've mentioned this obviously on the podcast several times now, but uh, but again, I mean, it's an important frame of reference that the house I bought in Middlesbrough, because I felt like I had to get on the property ladder when I was young and I couldn't afford to buy in London where I work. So the house I bought in Middlesbrough, I bought for the same price of which I've just sold it 20 years later. Which is very unusual in the UK. Normally, if you, normally the whole point about getting on the housing ladder, and this has been true my entire life is there's this idea in this country that it is the only way to accumulate wealth, right? So, you know, I just 
grew up in a household where it was just taken for granted that the big economic decision you had to make was to buy your own home. It was partly for the independence of being able to have a family, mm. but it was also partly because within this country, okay, actually I was lucky to be in a generation where and this doesn't really happen anymore. You know, my first job offered a decent pension scheme, and that doesn't really happen enough anymore. Mm. There's a there, there are compulsory pensions, but they're not generous enough. But broadly, you know, and this is uh, you know, I would regard as part of the British economic problem going back decades, and it is different from other countries. Right? It's different from continental Europe. It's different from America. You know. If you want to be, you know, wealthy in this country, if you don't get on the housing ladder, you're, you're it's, you know, you're thought of as being somehow written off, and you think of yourself as somehow having failed. And I you know, hate that stigma because that's exactly why I felt forced to buy my house in Middlesbrough. But the house I am in now, which I bought about three years ago, is the first house I've owned that I've lived in. I'm 41, and I have rented for like. The majority of my life has been renting. Why? Well, it's our big deal with owning a property anyway. Like, I'm very glad I do now. And I get your point about, you know, for a lot of people, they've seen a rise in the value of their property. But given, you know, where we're at with interest rates, given the fact that you need such a big deposit and it's really hard, particularly for renters now, to save any money for a deposit, whereas, you know, back in the day, you could rent and afford to save. You can't do that now. Why, why are we obsessed with owning homes? But actually, in terms of recent history, let's be clear, it was rational. Since 2007-8, you know, living standards, earnings for many, many people have stagnated. The one thing that has gone up and up and up is the value of their house. Now, you know, we lived in this era of low growth and low interest rates. It caused this asset bubble. If you are lucky enough to have an asset, a house, despite the fact your income wasn't rising, you were massively better mm -hmm. off. Now, that is an example of an economy that is not working properly. What you want is an economy that grows incomes. It shouldn't all be about inflating the value of these assets. And it has a massive impact also on political decisions. I want to take us back, okay, to the late 90s, to the new Labour government and the decision not to join the euro, not to join Europe's single currency. And, you know, I was so absolutely, as a political editor of the FT at the time, I was absolutely immersed in this decision-making process, talking to uh, the then advisor, to the Chancellor Ed Balls, and to the Chancellor himself, Gordon Brown. And they commissioned these incredibly detailed reports to look at what the economics for the UK would be of joining the single currency. And in the end, the overwhelmingly most important reason why, in an economic sense, we didn't join Europe's single currency is because of home ownership, because there were so many people in this country who had mortgages, way more in this country than in the continental Europe. And because the interest rate in the rest of Europe was about half that in the UK, what Brown and Balls feared was if we joined the euro, the rates, the interest rate set by the European Central Bank would be about half the level that would, you know, deliver economic stability. If that interest rate halved, there'd be a house price boom, the mother of all booms. And, you know, as we all know, booms are always followed 
by bus. So they simply took the view that it was way too dangerous to join the euro because of our excessive dependence as a nation on house owning. I didn't know that. That is so interesting. And looking internationally at this, because I'm fascinated by the how it works in other countries. And, and Singapore is a really interesting country to look at in terms of nine out of 10 people there own their own homes. And they have a scheme, don't they, where the, they have flats owned and built by the government, which are sold directly to citizens, but on a leasehold basis rather than a freehold basis. So they get them on these 99-year leases, which means the flat owners get the security of having them for their entire lives, but also the government can get the flats back when the citizens die and resell them. And it's an interesting concept, that one, isn't it? Well, I mean, it certainly plays into my view, which is we have got it wrong in this country, that, that a home is about... As I say, keeping warm, keeping the rain out, it should not be your principal way of making money. And it is this obsession with owning homes um, to generate wealth that is part of the big flaw in this country. And it also means, however, that right now, you know, when it comes to you know how you reform this, it's a really big problem because given that the all that wealth is typically owned by older people. You know, if you were to say now to young people, you know, actually, this is mad. You shouldn't own your own home. You should try and generate wealth some other way. That just seems terribly unfair because what you're doing is you're just locking in to the UK rampant inequality. And if you're lucky enough to be the kid of somebody who you know, owns a property, your advantage in life is massively over somebody from, you know, a background where your parents don't own a property. And so actually what it leads us into is this situation where no political party feels they have the courage to actually challenge home ownership as the principal source of wealth. It's all about how do you encourage yet more people to get on the housing ladder. And at some point, I have to say, it would be great if we could just have a national debate about what are the other, you know, better ways to spread wealth around. There's also the element in all of this about the royal family owning a lot of land across the country that houses have been built on. There was that fascinating story recently about peoples uh, who die and they have a property for someone to inherit. If they've got no one to inherit it, the money goes to you know, the duchy of Lancaster or whichever area that the property is in, which is fascinating in itself, isn't it? Because that's a big inequality there. There's inequality everywhere you look. I was, however, struck quite recently that Prince William said that on duchy land, he was thinking about building more affordable housing. The proof, as they say, will be in the pudding or in whether it actually gets developed. But he's certainly saying the right things, many would say. I mean, there's loads to talk about in this, isn't there? Um, we want to talk about solutions as well. I'd love to hear your ideas on that, Robert. Uh, but for now, let's have a quick break. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? 
Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me, Robert Peston. So we are doing a housing special, aren't we? So we've talked about some of the problems. I want to know what your solution is then, because I know you'll have ideas in your head of how you think we should solve this. But the the one thing I wanted to say before we do that is just the thing I don't like about the whole home ownership thing is it does feel like a gamble. Buying a house feels like, you, you know, you're gambling on, you don't, for start, you don't get much experience of the house, do you? You literally see it once or twice and then you're making your biggest financial decision based on that. And then with taking out a mortgage, that feels like a gamble too. Like we've got, again, 1.6 million people this year who were coming off fixed term deals. And, you know, they're, they're going to see an incredible hike in mortgage rates again. But how do you ever work out your risk factors in this when you're working out your affordability? It feels like a gamble. You know, there were stress tests, weren't they, brought in with affordability after the financial crisis where they checked people's affordability on the basis of if interest rates went up by another 3%, would they be able to afford it? And they, they've kind of got rid of things like that. But it does feel like a gamble for the person buying the house. Now, you must be getting this because I am. People said, should I fix now, Steph, or should I carry on? Are we? And it's like, God, it's like gambling. I feel like I'm watching a horse race every time, you know, these decisions about interest rates are made. I mean, obviously, interest rates are coming down. And, and I think if people you know can wait a bit to fix that's you know in my view a sort of more rational thing i'm going to play this back um, in 12 months yeah well See? you know if, if, <laughs> if, if, if you know people can shout at me if i've got this wrong but i mean you know my strong sense is that not massively but interest rates are, are coming down a bit and actually this is something that is going to really upset you know the million plus people who are having to reset their mortgage rates at much higher rates every year at the moment actually in terms of a more balanced economy, higher interest rates are a good thing. I mean, it's it, it'll drive you up the wall if your available spending power is going down because what you're paying in your mortgage does go up as you reset your mortgage rate. But truthfully, it, with a higher rate of interest, there are more opportunities over the long term to earn a return from other kinds of investment. And actually, this is we might do a special on this on another occasion. One of the huge weaknesses of the UK at the moment is the low valuation of our companies. Our stock market is valued way lower than other stock markets. Part of the reason for that is our pension funds are not investing enough in UK shares and individual people are not investing enough in individual shares. If I were in power, I would massively create incentives to direct money, our money, into the UK stock market and that would have that, that you know that would have a virtuous effect a because it would diversify the investments of all of us and b it would reduce what's known as the cost of capital 
for businesses. It would become cheaper for businesses to raise money. They would invest more here. They would invest more internationally. The economy would grow faster, and we it would help a lot to get out of this stagnation. So I think a really bold, imaginative government would actually look at the fact that we've got this undervalued stock market as a massive opportunity yeah. to fix all sorts of our structural problems. So on that, I think I'm quite a good example of that working. So I might not have made any money whatsoever on the Middlesbrough house, but my investments in stocks and shares are up 40% over the last 10 years. So, you know, that and because of the tax incentives around investing in companies, that's how I ended up investing in the slime business. There's a couple of other businesses I invest in, quite a lot of them. I've got the money back I've put in, but obviously there was the tax incentive. We want bigger tax incentives to invest in stock market companies. The, the limit on what you can invest in an ISA is way too yeah. low. Yeah. I mean, you know, my own view is, and I know there'll be arguments about whether this too much favours the rich, but I think if, for example, the so-called ISA limit you know, which means that you don't pay either income tax or capital gains tax on your holdings in an ISA were increased to, when it comes to shares, British shares, to £50,000 a year. Personally, I think that would be a really great way of encouraging people to diversify how they save. The £20,000 a year limit is just too low. I'm not saying you should do that for cash, ISAs, but for shares, I think personally that would be a really important innovation. Do you know what? We should probably at some point as well do an episode where we look at how different investments have done because I'm obsessed with having, you know, money in different pots so as well as the stocks and shares and and different businesses. I've also been investing in art and things like that. So it'd be quite funny interesting to see, you know, on people invest in gold or whatever else, just how how they've all been doing and do a bit of a comparison at some point in the show, wouldn't We it? should definitely do that. I yeah. think that'd be a really interesting conversation. But anyway, I just want to get on to the other issue, well, I mean, a number of issues about how you solve the crisis. And, you know, we have got a Labour Party that, as you know, has said it's committed to, to building 1.5 million houses over five years if it wins the general election and is adopting some of these ideas about relaxing planning controls and all the rest of it. But actually, you know, some would say it's still not being bold enough. One of the statistics that absolutely screams at me hmm. is some work that was done by the Office for National Statistics. We should give them a name check all the time at yeah. the moment. They collate census data and the last time they looked at home occupancy, they calculated that 70% of British homes are under-occupied. And that means that 70% of all homes have one or two or more bedrooms surplus to what the people living there actually need. All right? So, you know, one of the things that immediately everybody can see on that basis is if, you know, 70% of people in this country are living in homes that are too big for them. If you could simply encourage more of those people to downsize, um, if you could simply encourage more people to, in a sense, shuffle, if we could somehow shuffle our ownership so that those with greater need had mm. access to these bigger homes, that in itself would solve an enormous amount. So here is my proposal. Go on. Right. So my proposal is that if you are selling a house that's too big for your purposes, 
you should get effectively a very significant tax credit that would go against the stamp duty yeah. you pay on your next property. Mm. So if you can demonstrate, let's say, let's just say you're an older couple and you've got four bedrooms and uh, you can demonstrate that you're moving into a property that is two bedrooms, you know, my view is you should be given a credit against the stamp duty you pay on that smaller property. And I think that would be a massive incentive. And actually, the way to do it is you give, you, you know, because some people sell and then rent for a bit, you should be able to keep that tax credit up until the moment you actually yeah. purchase. That sounds like a really good idea. I just have visions of people like getting divorced and, you know, booting people out of their houses, kicking the kids out just to try and <laughs> show that they have got more rooms than God, they you're, need. you're so cynical about human nature. Can, can I tell you what, my, I think mine is, obviously my big thing is I think we need to spread where the jobs are and improve infrastructure. I think that is key to making houses more affordable across the country. But I think the fundamental issue, you know, my friends who are first-time buyers tell me it's the deposit. That is thing they could afford the mortgage repayments because it's equivalent or less than the rent but they cannot save for a deposit and it feels like there needs to be something well that takes us to your singapore model i mean you know of course we should look at a situation where you know the state effectively pays the deposit but on that basis there is an argument that says maybe you don't keep that property forever. Maybe, you know, maybe on the Singapore model, you know, it reverts after, you know, however many yeah. years. The key point here is you just have to be imaginative. Right. Should we wrap things up then? That's it for us. Uh, we'll be back with uh, another episode, of course, uh, next week. Probably a couple of episodes. We've got some more good interviews coming up, which is something to look forward to. Any suggestions on that front, send them in restismoney at gmail.com or just search for us on our social media pages and pop us a comment there. Uh, that's it from us. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye.